The son of a slave, he was nevertheless educated at Rutgers and Columbia. With an attained law degree, he played in the NFL before becoming an international recording star of stage and screen. A friend of the aristocracy, he performed in Buckingham Palace. While at home in the United States, his passport was denied, as was his lodging at many hotels. He was Paul Robeson, an artist and revolutionary. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. United forever in friendship and labor, our mighty republics will ever endure. The great Soviet Union will live through the ages, the dream of a people, their fortress secure. Long live our Soviet motherland. The song is the Soviet Union's anthem. It is sung by an American with black skin and red ideals. This cost him greatly. Although an athlete of the finest order and a star of stage and screen with a law degree, Paul Robeson lived a diminished existence in the land of his birth. He remains one of the most enigmatic Americans in modern history. Dark and stormy while great Lenin led us Our eyes saw the bright sun of freedom above and Welcome to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. That's spelled H-O-R-N-E. He is the author of tens of books, but his latest book is entitled Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. Dr. Horn holds a BA from Princeton, a PhD from Columbia University, and a JD degree from Berkeley. He is the John J. and Rebecca Morris Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. And it is my utter delight to welcome you, Dr. Horn, to Watching America. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm just going to do, if I may, a quick synopsis of uh, Paul Robeson's uh, life and then uh, as a foundation, and then we can progress uh, with some degree of chronology through his his, uh, decades. Paul Leroy Robeson was born in 1898. He died in 1976. He received a BA from Rutgers University and uh, a Bachelor of Law degree from Columbia University. He also attended NYU for a while and the University of London. He was an exceptional athlete playing uh, for the NFL, but he was also a bass baritone singer, actor, uh, starring in roles both in the United States in what sometimes were called race films and also across the water in the UK. Because of his uh, social activism, um, he suffered. It cost him a lot. Um, His sympathy for socialism and communist uh, associations led to him appearing before the HUAC, which is the House on Americans Activities Committee. From 1922 onwards, he maintained quite a a heartfelt uh, feeling for the UK, which was to the large part entirely reciprocated. In fact, as a side note, we did a show not so long ago from Abbey Road Studios, which most people associate, of course, with the Beatles. And when I was in Abbey Road Studios, I was very cognizant, being in Studio 2, that actually Paul Robeson had recorded there back in 1932. Robeson's father was a Presbyterian reverend and a former slave with family uh, of uh, lineage coming from Ecuadorian and Nigerian background, otherwise known as the Egbru or Agbrabo people. His mother was a Quaker. She was visually impaired and tragically died in a house fire when young Paul was only six. Um, Let's just begin by talking about the influence of his parents, if you don't mind, um, Dr. Horn. Uh, A 
father who was in the African-American Episcopal Zion Church and uh, a mother who was a Quaker. What impact did that have on the man? Well, I would point particularly to the influence of his father because his father, as you suggested, comes out of the Negro Church. And as you may know, the Black Church has been a bulwark in the Black community, even going back to the days of slavery. And oftentimes during his life, Paul Robeson would imagine uh, what would his father want him to do at a particular, particularly crucial moment. And so his father, even after he, his father passed away, was, was a kind of moral guy for him. And then his brother also was a man of the cloth and had a church for years in Harlem, the neighborhood in New York City, Manhattan. And at a time when Mr. Robeson was under duress as a result of his political activities and was finding it difficult to find halls in which he could address the assembled, uh, this church in Harlem opened its doors to him. And throughout, I think it's fair to say that not least because of the influence of his father, uh, he maintained a very close relationship to the black church. No man is an island, and uh, he loses his father at 20, and then he goes to school, and uh, he is uh, able to surmount um, personal injustices, social injustices. And then a particular lady comes into his life, known as Aslanda Cardosa Good, otherwise known as Essie. Uh, she becomes Robeson's wife and uh, manager. Uh, she's interestingly of Jewish ancestry, uh, Sephardic Jew uh, family of uh, lineage from Spain. What impact did this lady have on him, and could he have had the life he had had it not been for her? Well, the impact that she had was enormous, and it's difficult to imagine Robeson soaring to the heights that he did without her entering his life. Even if you look at his career as a singer and actor, he was basically nudged into those fields, if not pushed aggressively, by his spouse, Eslanda Robeson. And then throughout, she stood by him, uh, even though the accusation was oftentimes made uh, that he had a wandering eye, but that did not prevent her or preclude her from continuing to stand by her man and to serve as not only his manager, but also as a kind of moral guide and also as a kind of critic. Because Robeson oftentimes suggested that if he had his druthers, he might have become a simple college professor of philology. His passion was studying languages. Now, ultimately, this had significant political impact. Uh, that is to say, he studied Russian and spoke Russian. Uh, he studied German and spoke German. And a turning point in his life comes in the early 1930s when he actually visits Nazi Germany. But also, this plays a role in terms of his worldwide popularity. Uh, in the book, I talk about one particular episode where prior to giving a concert in Norway. He spent hours upon end studying Norwegian so that when he addressed the audience, he could ex basically speak in their tongue. And his ability to speak in the language of peoples all over the world helped to endear him to peoples all over the world. And it also led to his political conclusion that humanity is one that we may have certain differences, language not being the least of these differences, but ultimately we're all, we were all part of one human species. So his ability as a polyglot um, was basically an attempt, in a, ironically, in a theological sense, to undo the Tower of, uh, of Babel uh, and the separation of languages. So he saw it as a campaign to reach out to all persons. Is that, is that a fair assumption? That is correct. And, and also, I think it's fair to say that it was part of a political project, too, although I would not, not necessarily say that this was for most. What I mean is, is that we're talking about a population, the black American population, that was enduring Jim Crow, that was enduring lynching, 
that was enduring all manner of terrorist activities, not least from organized formations like the Ku Klux Klan. And Robeson felt that it would be quite useful to the black American struggle to have international support and international solidarity, and certainly his ability to speak these various languages was quite useful in helping to forge international solidarity. Well, you alluded to um, his visiting Nazi Germany in the early 30s, and I don't want us to get too far uh, away from this before I ask you. Did he have association or friendship, perhaps, with Jesse Owens uh, of the 1936 Olympics? And what kind of uh, reverie and respect did the two men have for each other? Well, as your audience may know, Jesse Owens was an Olympic sprinter. He participated in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, where Adolf Hitler himself (laughs) helped him to be a spectator. When Mr. Owens soared into notoriety by winning these various races and winning the long jump, which was a kind of refutation of the Aryan so-called race science uh, that was then emanating from Berlin, I think it's fair to say that both being men of renown, that Robeson and Owens were acquainted, but I would not want to make too much about this particular association because I don't think it would be fair to Mr. Owens to associate him with a man, Mr. Robeson, who went on to basically attain a certain kind of notoriety because of his socialist beliefs. Fair enough. Um, Before we completely leave, not that we can, uh, uh, Essie, uh, as as his wife, she was also in her own right uh, a phenomenal uh, person and force. Um, she worked at New York Presbyterian Hospital, where she became the head of the historical uh, chemist uh, department uh, of surgical pathology, and uh, then went on to earn a master's of science from the London School of Economics and Anthropology. So she had a, a firm intellect, uh, which was a suitable counterpart for the basic essence of who Paul Robeson was. Um, You mentioned that there were indiscretions that came into uh, Paul Robeson's life. Two main names come to mind, and I'd be curious to get your uh, assessment of them. Uh, Peggy Ashcroft and Yolanda Jackson. (laughs) Well, first of all, with regard to Eslanda Robeson. She was a graduate of the University of Illinois. She was also a journalist of some note, and I would continue to recommend the diaries that she penned when she visited South Africa and Africa in general in the 1930s. They're quite illuminating and are still being mined by scholars because of their insight. With regard to Peggy Ashcroft, uh, this is a woman who, as well, was this kind of celebrity, given her role in drama. And as you know, Robeson spent a good deal of the 1920s and the 1930s uh, living in London. Uh, it was one of his favorite cities. In fact, when his passport was taken, which was the case for most of the 1950s, he immediately returned to London when he got his passport back, uh, circa 1958, 1959. And that became his base of operations. And I, was, I think it's fair to say that the people of England and also the people of Wales, Wales it should be said, yes. in, embraced uh, Robeson and Kine. In fact, he was very close to the coal miners uh, of Wells and one of his uh, favorite movies, in fact, in, involved these miners in Wales. And uh, with regard to Miss Ashcroft, back to her, of course, she, as oftentimes happens, uh, even those who are, are not fans of celebrity gossip cannot ignore the reality that oftentimes in this hot house atmosphere of the theater, when actors are drawn together in the intensity of a production, uh, sometimes a certain kind of intimacy and affection emerges. Uh, now. He oftentimes said that when he acted in Othello, recall this is the famous Shakespeare play about uh, a man of color Mm -hmm. and uh, 
plays the leading role. And uh, there are certain intimate scenes on stage involving Mr. Robeson and uh, women of European ancestry. And he oftentimes suggested that even though this did not pan out, if he had tried to have these scenes of intimacy on the stage in the United States, it would have violated uh, norms, to put it mildly. And he would have been fearful that some from the audience audience might have rushed the stage to attack him. Although that did not happen when he uh, did his uh, landmark Othello on the New York stage in the 1940s. Well, to go as an aside, to go as far as 1967, um, there was the singer Petula Clark. I've had the pleasure of meeting her. She's still with us. And Petula Clark had Harry Belafonte as her guest on her special. Uh, I believe it was on an NBC and Chrysler Corporation were the sponsors, and they were very upset uh, because Petula Clark had uh, just made a, an overture by just grabbing Harry Belafonte's arm during a duet, and the network went bonkers, and that's 1967. Well, I mean, this is the era from which we have emerged, and as another aside, Harry Belafonte, who is still in the land of the living, fortunately, yes. uh, was mentored by Paul Robeson and his autobiography, Mr. Belafonte talks about how uh, Mr. Robeson took him under his wing in the late 1940s, and also how Mr. Belafonte tried to avoid the snares that entrapped Mr. Robeson. That is to say, Mr. Belafonte was overtly political, but some of his more radical activities were not as overt, shall we say, as Mr. Robeson's which probably helps explain why he has survived and also has been able to avoid different kinds of, quote, blacklists, unquote. Well, I think Robeson said to Harry Belafonte at one point, make sure that people get to know your songs, because if they sing Mm -hmm. your songs, they'll want to know about you. And then if they want to know about you, they'll want to know what you believe and you can persuade. That's right. And as I recall, the name of Mr. Belafonte's staring autobiography is my song. Yes. And uh, it, it's an autobiography that, that I really recommend quite highly. I mean, there are some vignettes and episodes in that book that after you read them, you have to take a deep breath and put the book down for a few minutes before you plunge on. Looking now at the politics of the man, which uh, are completely, at least from the late 1920s onwards, inseparable from who he is. It's, it's, he just exudes uh, a social awareness um, with great bravery uh, beyond his time uh, at that point. Uh, he identifies early on, as you've alluded to, with Welsh miners. He's, he's called to uh, make a film. But prior to that, he didn't understand really uh, much about the Welsh people. Um, they were subjugated uh, in an economic system to risking their lives, basically welcoming black lung ill health into their existence. And once uh, Robeson became aware of this, he aligned himself with them. And moreover, at one point when there was a march to London – um, and many of them were hungry on their way to the capital city. Um, he even provided meals for them. It was at this point, though, that he was meeting people like H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw and falling under the influence of uh, more leftist thinking. Um, what was the genesis of that? Well, I think that there are many explanations. First of all, I think it's being in London, and London as a result of the British Empire, had attracted to its shores uh, many intellectuals and activists from far-flung outposts all across the globe. Uh, That would include the founding father of modern Kenya, speaking in Jomo Kenyatta. Uh, That would include the Trinidadian intellectual and writer, C.L.R. James, who Mr. Robeson collaborated with on various productions in the 1930s. This would also include many leading members of the Communist Party of Great Britain, such as the Anglo-Indian intellectual Rajani Palm Dutt. And it was in that atmosphere that Robeson, who was an incessant reader, uh, began to read more at their instigation and their suggestion. But I would also point to other influences. Uh, For example, He was influenced deeply by a fellow black lawyer from the United States, speaking of William Patterson, uh, who practiced law 
together with Rokeson in Harlem before he decamped to London. And William Patterson went on to join the U.S. Communist Party and becomes a leader in a turning point in Black American history, that is to say the case of the Scottsboro Nine, these nine Black youth in Alabama who were mm-hmm. accused falsely of sexual molestation of two-year-old American women were on the fast track to the electric chair before Mr. Patterson and the International Labor Defense, which has an affiliate in Moscow and is close to the U.S. Communist Party as well, uh, intervened. And this helps to catapult Patterson into a certain kind of fame. And he, in turn, influences Robeson both intellectually and politically. And then when he goes to Nazi Germany and comes face to face with the horrors of fascism, this is in the 1930s. And of course, the Scottsboro case itself kicks off in the 1930s. Uh, The confluence of these events helps to move him more to the left. I should say also that the Scottsboro case was important because it was a case of global solidarity with the Black American struggle, the likes of which had not been seen since the days of the abolitionist movement of the pre-Civil War United States. And of course, that movement in some sense had its headquarters in London as well. And this helped to reinforce this idea of international solidarity, being able to speak in the tongue of peoples all across the globe. And then, of course, there were his trips to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Uh, These trips were in some ways instigated and sponsored by William Patterson. The Soviet Union embraced Mr. Robeson, and certainly that was his impression. And he was impressed by the fact that the father of the modern Russian language, speaking of Pushkin, himself was a partial African descent. And this helped to lead to Mr. Robeson's embrace of socialism uh, full bore. And that, of course, helps to contribute to what some might consider to be a tragic unwinding of Mr. Robeson's career. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I am delighted and pleased to say that my guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. I emphasize the spelling because I'm sure you will want to get his book. The book is entitled Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. Um, I can't see any indication Uh, of Paul Robeson renouncing communism, but I do see circumstances where at at least he seemed embarrassed by certain facets of communism. Uh, A key point would be um, the purging of 1936 and 38, which is basically involving the the Kulaks, the uh, wealthy peasants, and a genocide. Uh, He tried to find um, some sort of explanation for his son at this time because it was an embarrassment. And he is reported to have said to his son, sometimes great injustices may be inflicted on the minority when the majority is in pursuit of a great and just cause. Um, What do you make of that statement? Because, uh, and I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate because that's part of my job (laughs) in this position. Wasn't that logic also used to some extent by those who brought about the gulags? I mean, you could say that uh, Vladimir Lenin would have been very, very happy with the idea of saying, well, something's necessary for the for the betterment of the, the majority. Well, when you quote that statement, uh, the thought that passed through my mind is that if you put that quotation on a piece of paper, you could just as well ascribe it to Winston Churchill between 1941 and 1945. In what way? In the sense of that you would be hard-pressed to find critiques of the Soviet ally of London between 1941 and 1945 when there was this war to the death with Nazi Germany in which the Soviets on the Eastern Front played a premier, if not primary, role. Of course, that changed after 1945. Of course, there was the Iron Curtain speech, so-called, of 1946 in, in Missouri with President uh, Truman standing nearby. But I think it's also fair to say that you have many staunch U.S. patriots 
who CEO, uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, a possible nominee for president in 2024, just enunciated that slavery was a, quote, necessary evil, unquote, in terms of constructing these United States of America. So I think that oftentimes history presents us with unpalatable choices. Uh, in terms of the litany you just cited, you could have added, for example, others, such as what has been reported to be the execution of Poland officers in the forest, the Captain Forest of Eastern Europe during the midst of World War II. So these were very difficult and complicated times. And likewise, I could have added that you'd be hard-pressed between 1941 and 1945 to find critiques of Moscow coming from Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself. In fact, uh, as I've written in other books, it was during that period that Mr. Roosevelt counseled Hollywood to make pro-Soviet films. If your listeners go to YouTube, uh, they can call up, for example, Mission to Moscow, which portrays uh, Mr. Stalin himself as being a benevolent leader, much beloved by the masses in the then Soviet Union. Of course, after 1945, after World War II concludes, uh, there is a reversal, and many Hollywood moguls are then called on the carpet and asked why they made these uh, pro-Stalin films. They were not sufficiently agile to suggest that it was at the instigation of Mr. Roosevelt and the White House himself. So uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, Mr. Robeson is not alone with regard to this broader allegation that is being put forward. Speaking of Russians uh, and Russian films uh, and indigenous Russian films, Sergei Eisenstein was the, was the man, the great editor and director, who invited Robeson to, uh, to Moscow. What was their uh, affiliation with each other like? Well, Robeson, because he was a worldwide celebrity, perhaps the best-known Negro of the 1930s and the 1940s, that was a calling card to develop relationships with people of a similar stature, including Sergei Eisenstein. It was suggested that they would collaborate on a film, and I think it's a shame that it was not ultimately produced. A, a film, for example, on the Great Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. Although, as I mentioned, uh, C.L.R. James, the Trinidadian intellectual, uh, he and Robeson did collaborate on a play in the 1930s about the great Haitian Revolution. In fact, your listeners can find a recently published edition of this uh, masterwork, uh, and I would recommend it to them. Uh, of course, Mr. Eisenstein had his own problems uh, with Stalin and with the regime in Moscow as well. He is reported to have said, Robeson I'm speaking of here, he said regarding his experience in the Soviet Union, here I am not a Negro, but a human being for the first time in my life. Did that solidify his staunch defense and fervor for communism, do you think? Oh, I think so. And when you were saying that, I was thinking my own experiences abroad. And I think this is the experience of many black Americans abroad. You expect to be treated abroad like you're treated in the United States. And that's not a compliment to the United States. In other words, you expect to be followed in department stores. You expect police officers to always be on the verge of bashing you over the head with their billy club, et cetera. I remember when I first started going to London some years ago to do research, this is what I was expecting. And perhaps if I had had a different kind of accent, I've been told I have a U.S. accent. Uh, Very much might so, have happened. yes. <laughs> I, could, I, I could attest to that. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I didn't have those sorts of harsh experiences. And actually, uh, that left me scratching my head, trying to figure out why, which then led me actually into further kinds of research that eventuated in books. And so I do think that that experience in uh, Moscow, which did not have the same kind of experience with the African slave trade that, say, London did, for example, or Washington did, for example. And therefore, there was not the historical predicate for treating a person of darker hue 
in a third-class manner, that I do think that that had an impact upon him. And of course, Robeson was not alone in this regard. Uh, recall that that other leader of Black Americans during this period, I'm speaking of W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP in 1909, a founder of the Pan-African movement, a great scholar, intellectual. Uh, he had similar comments to make about Moscow, as did Langston Hughes, the Harlem Bard, yes. perhaps the most celebrated uh, Negro poet and playwright of the 20th century, sure. uh, who, who, of course, not only uh, toured uh, the Russian part of the Soviet Union, but also Central Asia, which is represented in his still-affecting memoirs, I Wonder as I Wander, and The Big Sea. So Robeson was not alone and solitary with regard to this opinion. Being treated as a as a human being, um, when one is not treated fully as a human being by all persons, um, certainly must be, uh, in the best sense of the word, uh, certainly liberating uh, and a renewing of the soul for a person to experience that. But I wonder, even though there were leanings this way with uh, Paul Robeson uh, towards a leftist viewpoint, more socialistic viewpoint, we have just said that, it, as indicated, it, it probably solidified his commitment to communism by his experience in Moscow and the Soviet Union. Do you see a parallel with that with, with Malcolm X, for instance, with Islam, where he found a brotherhood and an acceptance, as he uh, reported, uh, that he didn't find elsewhere? So what I'm saying, is it possible that Paul Robeson might not have been a uh, impassioned communist had it not been for his experience with racism. And the same for Malcolm X um, may not have been perhaps uh, uh, embracing of Islam if he had had a favorable experience. I guess what I'm saying, does A lead to B that leads to C? And if you take away the element of B, you would never get to C. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the question calls for speculation, a subject of which I'm not expert but well, none of us are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what I will say is that I think we are detecting a kind of pattern. Uh, that is to say, black Americans feeling per persecuted and harassed at home and then going abroad and not feeling persecuted and harassed and then coming and arriving at overarching conclusion. I think that that helps to unite Mr. Robeson and Malcolm X, who, by the way, were acquainted uh, in Harlem in the 1960s. And in fact, uh, right before Mac Malcolm X was assassinated in February 1965, uh, he and Mr. Robeson had conversations in Harlem because both were present at the funeral of Lorraine Hansberry, the mm -hmm. celebrated black American playwright, author of Raisin in the Sun, amongst other works. Yes. So I, I do think that there is something to this point that uh, history might have turned out differently, if I can speculate in this direction. <laughs> if, this is certainly counterfactual. If uh, <laughs> Robeson and Malcolm had been treated more honorably and more respectfully in the land of their birth. We go to Spain. 1938, uh, he took a, a position siding with the Republican uh, facet of the Spanish Civil War. Um, was that just theoretical agreement or was there an impassioned emotional accord as well for, for what Spain was going through? I think it was a bit of both. Uh, recall that this is in the 1930s when fascist Berlin is on the march and Mussolini and his black-shirted brigades on the march in Rome. Fascism, according to some, was the wave of the future. Uh, this was the conclusion of the man who probably defined celebrity in the United States at that moment. I'm speaking of Charles Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy, yes. who flew across the Atlantic Spirit in an airplane. Saint Louis. Yeah. Exactly. 1927, uh, which was a remarkable uh, flight a remarkable task that he pulled off almost single-handedly. Uh, he, of course, was attracted to fascism, as was Henry Ford, uh, the most uh, famous and notorious industrialist of that era. And so there was a lot of fear, understandable fear, on the part of Robeson and many others. 
that if fascism could take flight in Spain, that it would give a boost to the fascists in the United States of America, and given the fact that Black Americans were already grappling with what could easily be called a close cousin of fascism, speaking of U.S. apartheid or Jim Crow, uh, there was a fear that if fascism prevailed in Spain, that that would turbocharge fascism globally, not least the United States of America, perhaps leading to even more harm for Black Americans. And so that's one of the reasons why, once again, Robeson was not alone. Uh, Langston Hughes, the man I mentioned a moment ago, mm-hmm. uh, the poet and playwright, also traveled to the front lines of Spain, as did an entire uh, phalanx of Black American fighters as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which was this sort of uh, brigade of volunteers from the United States uh, of all ancestries, but including Black Americans who traveled to Spain, many of whom gave their lives fighting against the rise of fascism in Spain. Robeson performed on the front lines of Spain. He contributed money for Spanish relief, as did many others at that particular moment in time. And I think it's fair to say that Spain was always close to his heart. And as we know, what happened is that his side, the Republican side, did not prevail. Francisco Franco came to power in the late 1930s and was able to rule what amounted to a kind of neo-fascism in Spain up until the mid-1970s when he passed away and finally democracy of a sort was restored in Madrid. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a very enthralling scholar, gentleman, and historian, Dr. Gerald Horn. The last name is spelled H-O-R-N-E. This is Indeed Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Dr. Horn's book is entitled Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's so often true Uh, It is said that one can take a person out of the country or a man out of the country, but you can't take the country necessarily out of the man. For all of his misgivings about American culture, he would continue to return to his land of birth. Uh, He came back at a very inopportune time during the McCarthy hearings. Now, to put things in perspective, I'm going to play for the audience uh, a clip of uh, Paul Robeson's experience before the committee uh, at the hearings. Here's now uh, an excerpt. My name is Paul Robeson, and anything I have to say, I have said in public all over the world, and that is why I'm here today. Mr. Chairman, I ask that you direct the witness to answer the question he's making us. I ask you to affirm or deny the fact that you're communist. I'm being tried for fighting for the rights of my people. It's... Let me read you a quotation. Let me listen. Do so, please. I am a lawyer. It would be a revelation if you would listen to counsel. You said, Mr. Robeson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism just as the resistance movement fought against Hitler. Just like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom, you bet your life. I have to insist that you listen to these questions. I am listening. In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave. And my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Now, what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There was no prejudice against you. Just a moment. This is something I challenge very deeply, that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the South. While you were in Moscow, Mr. Robeson, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. You are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. I'm sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Soviet Union. Nothing could build more on slavery than this society. The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've been doing all of this that I can. Can I read my statement? No! The meeting is adjourned! It should be. Well, he wasn't afraid to assert his views in a pithy fashion. What do you make of that occasion, and what was the lasting uh, impact on Paul Robeson? Well, first of all, a little background. Um, He returned to the United States at a time when, once again, 
Washington, Moscow, and London are on the same side in their battle to the death with fascist Germany and imperial Tokyo. I should add parenthetically that it was not preordained that many black Americans would be gung-ho about, uh, once again, uh, giving their lives to rescue the United States from this war with fascist Germany. Recall that in World War I, 1914 to 1918, they had been made, similar promises had been made to black Americans about how they would receive rights if they were to give their lives to fight once again against Germany. And then in the interregnum, Imperial Tokyo had made significant overtures in the black American community. Um, Many of these overtures have been forgotten, but if you look at Malcolm X's autobiography, you'll see that when he was called to be conscripted by the U.S. military as World War II was jumping off, uh, he basically made pro-Tokyo statements, and the draft board told him to leave forthwith, which is one of the reasons why he didn't wind up uh, in a U.S. military uniform. And so Paul Robeson comes back to the United States. He's in sync with Washington. They're on the same side with regard to the war. This lasts until 1945, but with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, there was a change in the political climate, which was inaugurated by Winston Churchill in March 1946 with the so-called Iron Curtain speech. And then that leads to the Red Scare, that leads to Robeson confronting President Truman himself in the White House in the late 1940s because of his assertion, Mr. Robeson's assertion and perception that Mr. Truman was not moving aggressively to confront the scourge that was lynching. Uh, This leads to a a downhill slide for Mr. Robeson in in his career. Uh, There were attempts on his life. His passport was taken. He's called before congressional committees and grilled. Uh, He's grilled and interrogated, particularly whether or not he was a secret or clandestine member of the U.S. Communist Party, uh, which he denies. And then that leads to his assertion uh, that he was born in the United States, that his ancestors were buried in the United States, that he claims part of the patrimony that emerges uh, from this nation state. And of course, he was an exemplar of U.S. culture. Uh, that is to say, he was famous for his rendition of Negro spirituals, this form of music that emerges from the black church. He was a fan of this new musical turn that develops in the 1940s while he's in Harlem called Bebop. It's represented by the musicians. uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Gillespie. Yes, right. Charles Yardbird Parker, ultimately uh, Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he visited the clubs. Uh, He was one one of the persons who he mentored besides um, Harry Belafonte was, of course, Lena Horne. Yes. uh, The late uh, singer and actor. Uh, who gets into hot water herself because of her reluctance to denounce uh, Paul Robeson. And, of course, there were many people who did not take the position that Lena Horne took. Uh, That is to say, Mr. Robeson was also at one time friendly with the fame-celebrated boxer, Sugar Ray Robinson. Yes. Pound for pound, the greatest (laughs) boxer of all time. But, of course, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson did not hesitate (laughs) to denounce Mr. Robeson. And I can can say the same for Jackie Robinson, the baseball player. Speaking Mm -hmm. of of Hollywood, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, my other life, I teach filmmaking. And uh, and so not only film production, but also film history. And Mm -hmm. I always have uh, uh, try whenever I can to each semester put in a a component of African-American actors in the history because most people are completely oblivious to it. I mean, they know Denzel Washington, they know Sidney Poitier, Mm -hmm. but they don't know Burt Williams. They don't Mm -hmm. know about Noble and George Johnson, the Lincoln Company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They certainly don't know about uh, Oscar Michaud and Clarence Mm -hmm. Muse, who also had a law degree, incidentally. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you look at the artistry of uh, Paul Robeson, I can see, and I'm wondering if you would concur with this, and perhaps you won't, and that's okay. Um, as far as style, stature, delivery, uh, elocution, um, uh, just just presence, there is a line in my mind from uh, Paul Robeson to the actor William Marshall mm-hmm, to James mm-hmm. O. Jones. There's a very mm-hmm. 
marked distinction of style that all three of them fit in, with Paul Robeson being the genesis. Is that untrue, or do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. And uh, unfortunately, when many people recall William Marshall, they'll probably recall Blackula. This, yes, this black yeah. version of Dracula. Which well, is one of the things I, I say is unfortunate because even though he needed the check, and anyone can understand needing the check, if you look at the wealth of his other roles and what he did, it was, I, I don't want to say belittling because it was a part is a part is a part, but it certainly did not do him justice of the caliber of actor that he was. Well, here, here. And with regard to James Earl Jones, as you probably know, James Earl Jones eventually did a one-man show uh, where he performed the role of Paul Robeson. In fact, in other interviews I've had about Robeson, I've I've had the host accidentally play James Earl Jones depicting Robeson before the Congressional Committee, and they assume it's Robeson. Well, I had the right one. I want to go on record. I know, I know the distinction between those two great gentlemen, and I have. I've just played the right one, just so it be known. (laughs) I want to ask you a personal question, if I may. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not only just fascinated with people with what they do, be they uh, academics and writers such as yourself, but I'm also interested in them. It seems to me, uh, even just just with a precursory dis, uh, evaluation, there are connections between you and Paul Robeson. Um, certainly, Princeton, New Jersey. Certainly, with Columbia University. Being the sensitive and informed man that you are, and no doubt were even at a younger age, did you feel a connectedness to him? And what did it take you? Uh, why did it take you, I, sh- I suppose I should ask, so many years to eventually get around to doing a biography on him? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, yes, I did feel a connection. Certainly, uh, arriving in Princeton, New Jersey, and now I'm about to age myself, in, in the mid-1960s, um, there was a remaining black community in Princeton, New Jersey, which spoke about Robeson incessantly. And I was a teenager then, and that's when I was introduced uh, to him. Mm. Why did it take so long? Well, that, that's a long story. I mean, first of all, his son, Paul Robeson Jr., who also wrote a two-volume biography yes. of his father. Fortunately, Paul Jr. is no longer in the land of the living. Uh, we had this, I, I knew Paul Jr., and we had discussed early on, when he was still alive, my doing that particular task, but I was a younger man at that particular time, and I'm an older man now, and I did not have the track record then that I do now. And so then he turned over that project to another biographer who then he had a big falling out with. Well, there was Lloyd Brown and, and Martin Dupertman. Uh, who, yeah, he who, had a big falling out with Martin Dupertman. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if, if you go to NYU into their archive, Martin Duberman wrote about a 600-page biography of Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. Paul Robeson Jr. wrote about an 800-page critique. I'm not joking. Wow. Of that biography. Wow. <laughs> it's really a, a stunning document. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in any event, then Paul went on to write a two-volume biography, uh, Paul Jr., uh, a yes. two-volume biography himself, which is w- well worth reading. I mean, oftentimes when family members talk about writing biographies of their loved ones, you say, yeah, yeah. But Paul Jr. actually did a good job with regard to this project. And so uh, he then, before he passed away, he deposited the Robeson archive at Howard University. And so later on, uh, let's, hope, hope, let's hope that I can say as a mature scholar, I was able to plunge into those archives and turn out this book. At what point did you, Dr. Horn, feel the closest to your subject in the writing of this book? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I guess, even though I think it's an understatement to say I have not felt the persecution that Paul Robeson <laughs> says. My passport has not been taken. As far as I know, nobody's tried to kill me. Let's hope that that continues. <laughs> but, uh, Indeed. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I felt that that whole chapter in his life resonated with me. Because I associate, you know, I've done a number of books on slavery, and slavery, of course, is one chapter of a, after another of horror and persecution. 
So I, I saw sort of a through line from slavery to Jim Crow to the erosion of Jim Crow and the persecution of Robeson and to where I am today and feeling that I had benefited in, in a certain sense uh, from their struggles and from Robeson's struggle. What do you think is the greatest misunderstanding about who Paul Robeson was? Well, I guess, the, I'm not sure if it's a misunderstanding, but I would say the most significant controversy that has probably prevented thus far him being portrayed on the silver screen, although I understand the British director, Steve McQueen, uh, in association with Belafonte, has a Robeson biopic in the works. I've heard that but, too, yes. Yeah, let, let's hope it, it proceeds, because I have enormous respect for Steve McQueen's work. Right. And we'll but, let, we um, need to specify, we're talking about the contemporary director, oh, yes. not the old movie star who was in yes. a green Mustang. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, uh, although I'm, I'm going to be very interested to, to answer your question by way of McQueen, I'm going to be very interested to see if this film emerges, how they deal with this question we were just talking about, the relationship to Moscow, the relationship to the Soviet Union, relationship to socialism, relationship to communist parties, etc., because I think that that's been the stumbling block to having a, an understanding and an appreciation of Robeson. And it's going to take some delicacy and sensitivity to deal with that thicket. Dr. Gerald Horn, let me tell you how much I have enjoyed this hour. It has been absolutely wonderful. Um, it's really lovely to hear a person who with great admiration, and yet an exacting critique is able to present uh, a personality of such importance. This show is called Watching America, uh, partly because of the fact that I come from abroad, as we've already established, but I have a great infatuation, love, and respect for America for all of its faults, of which certainly we, we can acknowledge. But without question, Paul Robeson is one of the most intriguing and interesting and effective uh, persons to have ever walked on this land or abroad on other continents. And I want to thank you, Dr. Gerald Horn, for bringing him alive and to our attention today. The book is called Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you so very much for being a part of this and, and bless you, sir. Thank you for inviting me. I hope we talk again. Something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.